Welcome back to Playing Crash Diaries podcast with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 25 and I'm going to take a closer look at the Pakistan International Airlines crash in Kathmandu in 1992, along with a Thai Airlines accident there a few weeks earlier. The Pakistan crash comes via suggestion by a listener called Herman. Thank you for the chat the other evening and also a big thank you for your great suggestion, Herman. But before then, we'll probe two other accidents in the Alps involving Air India planes and they're full of mystery and surprises and a box full of gemstones. It's unique that two aircraft from the same airline hit the same place, particularly in a completely different continent to their place of origin. But that is what happened to Air India 101, a Boeing 707-437 registration Victor Tango Delta Mike November, which hit the 15,700 foot high Mont Blanc in 1966. The other was Air India Flight 245, which crashed roughly in the same place, but years before, in 1950. The correlation is clearly unusual, despite the 16 years between the two accidents. The first Air India accident on Mont Blanc involved a Lockheed L749A constellation named Malabar Princess, registration Victor Tango Charlie Quebec Papa. The pilot in command was 34-year-old Captain Alan Saint, and the co-pilot was V.Y. Korgako, and the constellation was carrying 40 passengers and 8 crew on a Bombay-Cairo-Geneva-London route when it took off on the 3rd of November, 1950. At 10.43am the same day, the airplane hit the face of the Rocher de la Tournette at a height of 15,344 feet, killing all 48 passengers and crew. In this case, there was stormy weather about, and the captain had asked for a change of altitude based on turbulence. The stormy weather prevented immediate rescue efforts and the debris was only located by a Swiss plane on the 5th of November and rescue parties reached the site two days later. There were no survivors. The last transmission from the aircraft received by controllers at Grenoble and Geneva was I am vertical with Voiron at 4,700 meters altitude. He was over the point, in other words. The crash inspired a French novel called Le Neige and Doux based on which the 1956 Hollywood film The Mountain was made. Another film about the crash was the French Malabar Princess, produced in 2004. The cause was pilot error. They had miscalculated their position and were lower and closer to Mont Blanc than they thought. Chillingly, that wasn't the end of terrible experiences in the French Alps for the airline. Air India 101 was a Boeing 707-437, hit the 15,700-foot-high Mont Blanc in 1966. That crash killed all 11 crew and 106 passengers, including the pioneer of India's nuclear program, Homi Jahangir Baba. This was a clear case, though, of CFIT, controlled flight into terrain. It was also a case of poor cockpit resource management, apparently. The Boeing had taken off from Mumbai and made two scheduled stops at Delhi and Beirut and was en route to another stop at Geneva. At flight level 190, the crew was instructed to descend to Geneva International Airport after the aircraft had passed Mont Blanc. Its first problem was the fact that the crew had departed from Beirut with one of the two VOR receivers unserviceable. The pilots fixed the position of the Boeing by taking cross bearings from a VHF omnidirectional range beacon or VOR as they flew along the track from a second VOR. This was acceptable procedure at the time. Reading the recorded comments between the pilot and ATC is interesting. For a start, there was a lot of indecision. There was a lot of vagueness. It was a classic case of cockpit resource management gone wrong, as you're going to hear. At 0700 hours GMT, the pilot contacted Geneva Air Traffic Control and reported reaching flight level 190. 
He was told to maintain that flight level unless able to descend VMC-1000 on top. The pilot confirmed the ATC command and added that they were passing a beam Mont Blanc, but the controller warned him that the flight hadn't passed the beam Mont Blanc yet and radioed back, you have five miles to the Mont Blanc, to which the pilot answered with, Roger. The use of Roger is now banned in commercial aviation, as aviators know. Every ATC command must be read back exactly, and in this instance would probably have saved all those on board had this rule been in force. Shortly afterwards at 7.02 a.m., air traffic control confirmed that Geneva QNH was 1013, and a second later, Air India confirmed the QNH and said, we are leaving 190 this time. Then from around 7.04, air traffic control and Geneva radar tried to contact the plane repeatedly without any response. A few minutes later, another aircraft in the vicinity reported an ominous sign. El Italia's 324's pilot told ATC that, For your information about Mont Blanc, we noticed black clouds. The black cloud was at about 1,600 feet. It was appearing as to low cumulus clouds. Looking to you as low cumulus clouds? asked Radar. Then the ATC asked the Alitalia pilot to speak Italian, as it had become apparent that the black cloud could represent a catastrophic situation. The pilot said in Italian, the cloud was not a cloud. This black cloud caused us to think there was an explosion, the pilot told ATC in Italian. The pilot then returned to English and said there was turbulence and asked for level 240 and was re-cleared to head on to Paris. What had happened is that the Air India pilot plane had not remained at flight level 190, but had begun to descend after the last communication with radar. The air crew clearly had no idea that Mont Blanc actually lay dead ahead. The plane had struck the mountain at an elevation of 15,585 feet, and there was no way any rescuer would be able to make it to the wreckage immediately, and anyway, all 117 died instantly, it is believed. The commission investigating this accident concluded that the most likely cause was a combination of factors, as usual. Firstly, the pilot in command had departed Beirut knowing that one of the VORs was unserviceable. Then he had miscalculated his position in relation to Mont Blanc and reported his own estimate of this position to the controller. Secondly, when he heard this, the ATC controller warned the pilot that he had another five nautical miles to go to clear the summit of Mont Blanc but the pilot misunderstood the meaning of the message. So it was controlled flight into terrain, CFIT, the killer of many pilots and passengers. It was also a case of non-specific language being used. The idea of saying Roger instead of reading back the last ATC command, which is now banned, although I hear it every now and again. Usually the folks letting rip with a Roger in South African airspace are the elderly types who think it's mucho sexy to sound like a World War II warplane vet. There was also a whiteout situation on Mont Blanc that day, which contributed to the accident. A whiteout, as we all know, is when clouds and snow combine to produce a situation where the horizon is virtually invisible. L'absence d'embrasse est une nomination diffuse, says the report. Apologies for the poor French. Loosely translated, the commission found that there was an absence of shadows and diffuse light, which was dispersed by snow and ice particles suspended in the air. Sorry, more suspect French. Dans ces conditions, même les objets présentant des contrastes sont mal percus et pouvant donner lieu à des illusions d'optique. Even objects with contrasting light could not be easily seen and gives rise to optical illusions. 
The investigators believed that the pilots had become disorientated by the light and the white-out condition. Two terrible accidents then. Air India planes had hit the famous Mont Blanc twice in 16 years. But the story still wasn't over. Since then, Mont Blanc has lost a quarter of its glacial ice due to climate change and begun to reveal frozen remains of hikers, climbers and airplane passengers and parts. Starting in 2012, many finds related to both the Air India crashes have emerged from the melting ice cap. These items include a bag of diplomatic mail stamped on Indian Government Service Diplomatic Mail Ministry of External Affairs. And in 2013, a French climber found a metal box with an Air India logo. Inside were emeralds, sapphires and rubies worth around 340,000 US dollars. The markings on the jewel bag suggested the box had belonged to a passenger on the 1966 flight who may have been taking these jewels to New York to sell. As legally required, the climber dutifully turned them into police who attempted unsuccessfully over the years to find their owner, probably because it was an illegal transaction. Now, this story has a very recent ending. In November 2021, folks, after years of seeking the owner, the treasure was split equally between the climber, who remains anonymous, and the owner of the land upon which the plane crashed, the French state. So the finder has just been paid around $170,000. Merry Christmas, Mr. Anonymous. Unfortunately, other finds have been more macabre. In 2017, some human remains believed to be from the two flights were also discovered and returned to India. Over recent years, other climbers have found suitcases and clothing. Newspapers have also been uncovered, including one Indian Times paper announcing the election of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. So that's definitely linked to the 1966 accident as Indira Gandhi served as Prime Minister between January 1966 to March 1977. Just by the way, she served again from January 1980 until she was assassinated in October 1984. And now to the Pakistan accident of 1992, as suggested by a listener called Herman. So thanks again, Herman. This was the Pakistan International Airlines Flight 268, an Airbus A300 registration Alpha Papa Bravo Charlie Papa which crashed while approaching Kathmandu's Dhubuvan International Airport on 28th September 92. All 167 people on board were killed, and it's the worst crash of Pakistan International Airlines, as well as being the worst ever to occur in Nepal. The Airbus was 16 years old and had a varied background flying for Egypt Air, Kuwait Airlines, Capital Air, Air Jamaica, and Condor Fluchtdienst before being delivered to Pakistan International Airlines in April 1986. The captain was 49-year-old Iftikhar Janjua, who had 13,192 flight hours, including 6,260 on the Airbus A300. The first officer was 38-year-old Hassan Akhtar, who had 5,849 flight hours, with 1,469 on the Airbus A300. There were also two flight engineers on board, one operating and the other observing. Flight 268 departed Karachi at 11.13am Pakistan Standard Time heading for Kathmandu. After contacting Nepalese air traffic control, the Airbus was cleared for Sierra approach from the south. That meant it was directed to pass over a reporting point called Romeo, 41 miles south of Kathmandu VOR or 41 DME and should have been at an altitude of 15,000 feet. The approach then included a seven-step descent to 5,800 feet 
passing over reporting point Sierra, which was located at 10 DME and at an altitude of 9,500 feet before landing at Kathmandu. But that also meant it was set to pass over the Mahabharat range directly south of Kathmandu. The plane crossed Sierra and the pilot reported their position. But seconds later, the Airbus 300 ploughed into the side of the 8,250-foot mountain at Patadanda, disintegrating on impact, killing everyone on board. When investigators eventually located the cockpit voice recorder, it revealed nothing untoward, but it was the flight data recorder that explained what had gone wrong. Investigators with the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, who assisted with the investigation, found that the pilots had initiated each step of the seven descent steps one too early. At 16 DME, the aircraft was 1,000 feet below its cleared altitude, while at 10 DME, Sierra reporting point, it was 1,300 feet too low. This meant by the time it reached the Mahabharat range, the plane was well below the crest and hit the south slope. As usual with accidents, it wasn't just one thing that went wrong. There are other details we must mention. Poor visibility had compounded the problem Another issue was the ground proximity warning system, which was the older variant and did not trigger in time because of the extremely steep mountain terrain that rose up before the plane during the final moments. Then another thing, although the pilots of Flight 268 reported their aircraft's altitude accurately to air traffic control, the controllers did nothing to warn them of their inappropriate altitude until seconds before the accident. Later, the Nepalese air traffic controllers were judged to be too timid and reluctant to intervene in what they saw as piloting matters such as terrain separation. Investigators reviewed the approach plates for Kathmandu, which were described as unclear and creating confusion. Then they recommended a review of navigational charts and encouraged standardization of plates. Remember this series is about how some crashes lead to improved general airline safety, and this was one. The approach to Kathmandu Airport changed and it's now less complex. I need to mention another crash that had taken place at the same airport only a few months before the Pakistan Airlines disaster, and for similar reasons. Thai Airways International Flight 311 crashed north of Kathmandu. When you hear what happened, it'll make your blood freeze. Thai Airways International Flight 311 was an Airbus A310 on a flight from Bangkok, Thailand to Kathmandu. It crashed on approach hitting high ground 11,500 feet north of the airport at a fairly swift 300 knots, killing all 99 passengers and 14 crew and pulverizing the aircraft. Just by the way, this was both the first hull loss and the first fatal accident involving the Airbus A310. So what happened? Flight 311 departed Bangkok at 10.30 local time. It was scheduled to arrive in Kathmandu at 12.55 Nepal Standard Time. Captain Prida Sutumai and First Officer Puntat Punyayesh were properly licensed and certified, but only Sutumai had substantial experience flying into Kathmandu. After crossing into Nepalese airspace, the pilots contacted air traffic control and were cleared for an instrument approach from the south, that infamous Sierra VOR circling approach we've already heard about. That means they were heading towards runway 20. And an important note here, folks, Nepalese ATC at that time was not equipped with radar. Shortly after reporting the Sierra fix 5.4 nautical miles south of the Kathmandu VOR, the aircraft called ATC asking for a diversion to Calcutta, India, because of what they said was a technical problem. 
Before ATC could reply, the flight rescinded their previous transmission. The flight was then cleared for a straight-in Sierra approach to runway 02 as they had overshot the 20 approach, and the aircrew were told to report, leaving 9,500 feet. The captain asked the ATC at least four times for an update about winds and visibility at the airport, but ATC merely told him that runway 02 was available and didn't respond to the request about winds and visibility. The captain was clearly becoming more and more angry. So here, we begin to understand human fallibilities once more. A number of frustrating and misleading communications due partly to language problems and partly to the inexperience of the air traffic controller then ensued. You see, the ATC was a trainee who had only been licensed for nine months. He was a greenhorn. The captain asked for permission to turn left four times, but after receiving no firm reply, Sumatai announced he was turning right and climbed the aircraft to flight level 200. The controller handling flight 311 assumed from the flight's transmissions that the aircraft had called off the approach and was turning to the south, so he cleared the aircraft to 11,500 feet, an altitude that would have been safe in that area. The pilot dutifully descended back to 11,500 feet, but instead of a 180 degree turn back to Romeo, which was part of the hold, the plane turned a full 360 degree and passed over the airport once more and then headed up in a northerly direction. The complex situation had turned into a can of worms. Clearly distracted, Captain Sumitai had accidentally turned the autopilot heading too far, sending the plane into a 360-degree turn back to the north and directly over the airport. Neither pilot noticed that the plane was now heading north. It's thought that was because the plane's compass did not include the letters north, south, east, west, and the crew were glancing at it and for some reason misread the direction. At least, that's according to Thai officials. Like most pilots, I've always combined reading a compassed azimuth or numbers, so I'm not sure why the investigators thought the captain and first officer should be reading the NSW or E. Then first officer Bunyayesh tried to lock onto Romeo 27 waypoint, but when he did so, the flight computer instructed a 180 degree right turn, naturally as the plane was now far north of that position. The computer was trying to turn the plane back correctly, but because they thought they were heading south already, both pilots were now completely confused. Both seemed to struggle to make sense of the navigational display, oblivious to the fact that the plane was flying straight at some of the highest mountains in the world. It was a long five minutes later that First Officer Bunyayesh seemed to notice that they were flying the wrong way, and he said, We are flying north? Captain Sumitai cut him short, saying they were flying south and would turn north soon. At that moment, he doomed everyone in the plane, including himself. Seconds later, the ground proximity warning system issued a loud alarm indicating that the plane was too close to terrain. Captain Sumitai knew that the mountains south of the airport didn't reach the plane's altitude of 11,500 feet, so he just told First Officer Bunyayesh that the warning was false. Bunyayesh, unwilling to correct his domineering captain, never attempted to take control and turn the plane away. Sixteen seconds after the alarm sounded, Thai Airways Flight 311 slammed headlong into a vertical cliff 11,500 feet up the side of the Mount Baden-Powell Massif. The impact smashed the plane into tiny pieces, instantly killing all 113 people on board.
Nearby villagers in Gyangpedi heard the sound of the crash, but they were isolated in an extremely remote area. Their only way out was a single steep trail. Aviation authorities were alerted when the plane failed to reappear at Romeo, and the ATC called in search and rescue. Then the helicopters and spotter planes headed south, of course, because that's where the pilots had told the ATC they were heading. And remember, back in those days, Kathmandu did not have radar. It took almost a week before the villagers hiked out and made contact with the authorities, alerting them to wreckage they'd found on the mountainside to the north. It took another few days for the investigation team to arrive at the scene because of the vast mountain. No helicopter could get close, so it took a trek from 3,300 feet to 11,500 feet, further hampering the search. And this is where the tire crash claimed another victim. An investigator for Airbus, 62-year-old Gordon Kaur, died due to complications of hypothermia and hypoxia during the climb. The death toll linked to the Thai Airlines disaster was now 114. Still, there was no sign of the CVR or FDR of the black box. Then, weeks later, a relative of the victim asked for something electronic from the plane as a memento, and an investigator stumbled on a circuit board which included the memory chip of the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder. Talk about coincidence. Eventually, the air crash investigation by the Civil Aviation Authority of Nepal, Airbus Industry and the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, which assisted with technical details, determined that the aircraft had experienced a minor fault in the workings of the inboard trailing flaps just after it reached the Sierra reporting fix. Concerned that the complex approach into Kathmandu in instrument conditions would be difficult with malfunctioning flaps, then frustrated by ATC, the captain decided to divert to Calcutta. But the flaps suddenly began to work properly and he changed his mind. Remember I mentioned how he rescinded his initial request. Then the captain realized that he had to resolve the difficult approach to Kathmandu himself due to what appeared to be his first officer's lack of input. Just by the way, last week I was flying a Cirrus SR-20 which experienced flap failure turning base at Lanseria Airport here in South Africa. That also, by the way, miraculously healed itself. I landed and reported the snag and lived to fly another day. However, it was quite a thing watching the flaps literally flap around, I must say. It wasn't funny at the time. Back to our story and Thai Airlines. The investigators listened to the exchange between the Thai pilots and the ATC, which was found to be totally unacceptable for a number of reasons. The poor captain had repeatedly requested a weather update and had been ignored. When he asked for permission for a turn upon approaching Sierra, he was ignored until he'd overshot the position. What was the ATC up to? By the time ATC woke up, Thai Airlines had overflown Kathmandu and the aircraft was headed towards the Himalayas, and at 11,500 feet, he was hopelessly too low. I've hauled out the modern Kathmandu approach charts in STARS, or Standard Arrival Instrument Chart for 02. The go-around after missed approach features an extremely tight turn to the right, through a three-arc as it's known, climbing rapidly then heading southwest, and a long six-reporting-point flight to Danf to hold at 10,500 feet in a race-course pattern. The eventual report, though, folks, was jaw-dropping. Nepalese authorities found that the probable cause of the accident were the captain and air traffic controller's loss of situational awareness and language and technical problems caused by the captain, and he was frustrated and his workload was high. But there's more. The first officer's lack of initiative and inconclusive answers to the captain's questions compounded a confusing situation, while the air traffic controller's inexperience, poor grasp of English, 
and reluctance to interfere with what he saw as piloting matters such as terrain separation made things worse. It turned out that the young ATC was poorly supervised. They'd let him loose without proper monitoring in one of the world's most dangerous mountainous approaches. That's not all. Thai Airways International had failed to provide simulator training for the complex Kathmandu approach for its pilots. Then the pilots had used their flight management system incorrectly as they flew towards the mountains. If it wasn't for the terrible loss of life, this would be comical. That is about as comprehensive a list as you're ever going to get at any air crash investigation. Needless to say, a slew of court cases were launched by families of the victims afterwards. Respondents include Jeppesen and Thai Airways International. And this year, COVID and other challenges, such as payments to victims' families, has led Thai Airways International to restructure a debt load of $12.9 billion as the airline, which is already in bankruptcy protection, seeks to turn around its fortunes. Last year, it made a staggering loss of $4.5 billion US dollars. Given the ongoing pain aviation has experienced because of the pandemic, this story is a long way from over. Then, of course, the next major bungle a few months later was the Pakistan Airlines accident. So, with that thought ringing in our ears, we must end this bumper edition. Next episode, we'll focus on cockpit resource management and return to Kathmandu one more time as we probe the US Bangla Airlines Flight 211 that crashed fairly recently in March 2018 while attempting a landing. That killed 51 of the 71 people aboard, and the pilot's actions on approach will no doubt shock most listeners. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, or contact me on Twitter at Des Latham. And have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, folks. Until next, aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye. Thank you.